Candid Climate Conversations with Abhid Palla. Hello and welcome to Candid Climate Conversations with Abhir, a series of podcasts on climate change, part of the Ramphal Dialogues. I'm your host Abhir and today I'm delighted to have with me Ms. Emily Robinson, with whom I'll be discussing the role of renewable energy in solving the climate crisis. Emily is a Certificate in Business Sustainability Management from the University of Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership. Emily is a trustee on the board for Bread and Water for Africa, UK, and a member of the Board of Governors for the Commonwealth Human Ecology Council, CHEC. It's lovely to have you with us, Emily. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So I think the most interesting question which stood out to me when I read about you and the work that you're doing is that you're actually into finance and, you know, management. So how did you get involved in sustainability? How did those two interests come together? Well, to be honest, I didn't even want to start out in finance. Uh, I did, that's something I fell into. After university, I actually started at a nonprofit in my hometown of Buffalo. And an opportunity for finance came up at an internship in London. And who was going to turn that down? Well, not me. So I moved to London and I've been in finance for now about 15 years. Um, getting involved in sustainability, it was a buildup of little things. You know, as little, I wanted to send money into the World Wildlife Federation. I always wanted to do little things, but just as a kid. So I got my certificate for a panda or something. But as I got older, I thought about that less and less. And then um, little things just started to bother me. So at some of the major banks I worked at, there wasn't any, even any recycling on the floor. And it just sort of struck me one day, what are we doing with all of this stuff sort of just going out? And then we had a a water dispenser at work and uh, they dispensed with little plastic cups. I had a colleague who would go and get a brand new cup every time he wanted a drink. And at the end of the day, every day, he'd have 10 or 11 of these. He'd stack them all up and then he'd throw them in the trash. And I just thought, what are you doing? (laughs) It's just such a waste. And I think from there, I just started um, looking a little bit more into what I could be doing. I contacted the facilities guys and I just said, you know, what's the whole thing with the, with the plastic cups? We have glasses, we have mugs, we have everything. Can't someone just use those and, and put them in the sink? It's got to be better than all this plastic. You know, and they agreed. So that was sort of one thing. And then, yeah, just loads and loads of things built up. And I thought, all right, there's got to be something better that I can be doing, at least as an individual. Yeah, it's fantastic that, you know, that's how it sort of started out with something like a plastic cup. And what's even more impressive is that the facilities guys agreed because I've personally had very tough experiences with the administration in many institutions, whether it's been school or whether it's college. Everyone's very resistant to change and they want to talk about, you know, and that's such an integral part of the problem, you know. So um, you're also a board member on the Commonwealth Human Ecology Council. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing over there? What's the council doing as a whole? Sure. So I joined the Commonwealth Human Ecology Council, or it's known as CHECK, really. I joined them in November, so fairly recently. And they're an international development charity that focuses on human ecology and that sort of humanity's relationship with nature or biodiversity and the environment and things like that. And it was well over 50 years old. And uh, they're evaluating and pursuing sustainable solutions for the preservation of nature and doing that on sort of a grassroots approach. Anything from um, mangrove planting in risk, coastal risk areas to educating people about bees and, and why they should be protected and helping pollination projects get off the ground. And they do a lot of education materials. There's a lot of journals and articles, and this spans well over 50 years. So for anyone that's interested, I would encourage you to go to Czech's website. There's hundreds, if not thousands, of articles from air pollution to 
empowering women to pretty much anything you can think of. I think there's been an article. When I came in, I think really from a financial perspective, if they needed any any of that, as well as my climate crisis education background mm -hmm. to try and help. So I'm helping digitize some of these really old journals that they have. And so on Earth Day, we organized a talk on the climate crisis and some of the solutions that are available. And I think my real aim with that was just to educate people on the basic science of the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. um, and it is easy to understand. It's not some big complicated problem. It's the solution might be, but the reasons for the climate crisis are, are pretty simple. A lot of people say, you know, they make it out uh, as in English, we would say mountain out of a molehill because it's not that hard to understand. It's fossil fuels, it's emissions, it's global warming, and that's ruining the ecological balance, right? And in fact, even the solutions aren't that complicated. It's just about people sort of bringing about a mindset shift and understanding what they can actually do instead of just waiting for others to do it for them. And we have a lot of young environmentalists and young people who listen to this podcast. And you've done a degree in sustainable management. And I know that's something that I'm considering. So could you tell us a little more about what that course entails? You know, because you've heard of traditional business management, but what really is sustainable management? And what are some of the career prospects which come out of this after you're done with the degree? I wasn't actually going to um, do a degree, but I was just wanted to educate myself a bit more. And the more I read, the more interested I was getting. So I found this course, Business Sustainability Management. And I thought, oh, okay, maybe this is something I can use in my career, or at least where I'm working. Maybe if I can just help that one part of what I'm doing. And really, it's looking at business, kind of an eagle-eye view of it, but also within the business. So an eagle eye view of looking at the process, whether it's your supply chains, if you're trying to get into a circular economy, or you're just straight out using the linear approach, which is, we all know, not great. Reducing potential areas where you can reduce resources or reduce things that you're doing that maybe aren't necessary. We did a case study where there was a school that had no idea they did something called a, a sustainability audit. Mm -hmm. And basically what happened was somebody came in and said, well, why do you have such high electricity bills in the middle of the night? You're a school. And they had no idea. So <laughs> they couldn't figure it out. They didn't know where it was coming from because they didn't have that sort of technology to say, oh, this classroom or, or something. Mm -hmm. And it turned out the guy just sort of drove by in the middle of the night. Okay. And exactly at 12.01, all the lights in the school came on and then the parking lot came on. Everything was just on. Yeah. And it stayed on until about three or four in the morning. And somebody had set a timer at some point and it just never turned off. So simple things like that where you can just take a look at your business and get a sort of holistic approach to being more sustainable, whether it's your suppliers, maybe you're using paper napkins or plastic cutlery or something in, in your business. And where it's probably, you know, more sustainable to use a, a cleaning company to do all your linens or buy cutlery that's either wooden or, or something that can be reused and washed. And they have sort of all these assessments that you can do on that and your water intake and what you're using and it was just a really interesting course. Again, I didn't think I was going to do a course, but now that I did one, now I've, I've been doing another one and another one and another one. And yeah. eventually, yeah. hopefully, at least this um, master's certificate in October. So, No, best of luck for that, by the way. But it's very interesting because to me, one of the sort of defining moments, I would say, when I started out as an environmentalist in class six, seven, it was actually in grade eight where, you know, there's this think tank called Center for Science and Environment. And they approached us to do an audit of the school. And okay. what they wanted to do was make the kids do the audit and that do an environmental audit. And it was surprisingly, they got pretty into it. It was an in-depth study. It was not something you'd expect where, you know, it's more of a photo op with kids. They do some activities for a week. 
So we actually spent three months auditing the school. So I led a team of, I think, around 15, 20 people. And we went into everything. We went into the cafeteria, saw where the food is coming from, how it's being disposed of, what happens to the leftover food, what's happening to the raw material. Similarly, where's the water from the toilets going? Where's the rainwater going? A to Z, you know, assessing every part and process of the school, you know, whether it's water, whether it's food, whether it's electricity. And that's when I realized that, of course, sustainable management is probably perhaps fancy way to put it, but just the way, the crucial role that administrations play in sort of making everything come together. And by virtue of that, they have this power to do it in an environmentally friendly way. It goes right back to your story where those plastic up. I think, you know, we need to make organizations aware of the power the administration holds in just implementing these simple and piecemeal changes in making the world more sustainable. But yeah, let's really dive into it, you know. So we decided we'll talk about renewable energy. So what, according to you, do you think is the role of renewable energy in addressing the climate crisis? Well, it already is a big part uh, to play in combating the climate crisis. New electricity generated from solar and wind is cheaper than fossil fuel generated electricity in over two thirds of the world and projected within the next five years to be, be cheaper. Clean energy has to be the way for it because the world has finite resources. But on the other hand, globally, I think the wind resource is something like 1200 terawatts per year, of which they say 10 terawatts is recoverable. And the world's energy consumption is only something like 16 to 17 terawatts per year. That's over half of the world's energy consumption, just with wind. And we're not even talking about solar yet, which is much easier to recover. Right. So you just think it's almost, you know, one plus one equals two. It's it's there, it's available, it's free. Well, it's not free to harness, but it is free. It's, it's something that's there. And solar energy, you know, you get enough sun in one day to power the entire earth for a year. So that's definitely something that needs to be harnessed a lot better. Batteries is, I think, going to be the key to all of this because obviously in northern countries during the winter, they're not getting much sun. But being able to store that or even transport that is, I think, going to be key. They have cables running between Morocco and I think it's Gibraltar or somewhere in Spain. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge one being planned from Australia all the way to like Indonesia. Now, the technology is obviously it's catching up. That just kind of blows my mind sometimes. Just It's great. That's the fantastic in the, the part of renewable energy, which blows your mind that, you know, fortunately, there's so much of it. And, and in your typical doomsday movies, you'll see that, you know, the clouds are coming and the sun is also blocked. But I hope we're not there and we don't get there anytime soon. So it's truly infinite potential, you know, especially with solar and, and countries like India, you know, I think we have on average around 300 days of sun a year. So it, it's really about just installing those solar panels and like you said, harnessing it. I mean, solar panels used to be expensive, you know, 10 years ago, and they still are, but they aren't that expensive. They're not unthinkably, unimaginably expensive. It's definitely something which your corporates, your schools, your colleges can definitely implement it. And very soon, I'm sure, you know, people can put it in their houses as well. If you think back to the, the 1970s, I think it was something like $76 per kilowatt. Yeah. That's how expensive it was. And now it's under 20 cents. The price has just completely, you know, made it yeah. made it a I, lot more. Even if it is expensive, what people need to understand or they need to think of it as a reverse loan of sorts. I mean, you know, it's, it's mm -hmm. like you invest in it for five years or six years and then you're actually making money on it. So I've always, you know, explained it to people as a sort of inverse loan. Not a lot of people get it because it's not the most trendy example. But I think the simple objective or the fact being that in five or six years after you invest in it, you can actually make money uh, over and above what you initially invested. But, you know, when we talk about renewable energy, we talk about hydropower or even when we talk about windmills. 
they also sort of disrupt birds. They can pose a threat to them. And I was recently seeing on the internet now that there will be wind turbines which vibrate distant position. And, and there won't be turbines as such. There won't be blades. The wind will just be sort of moving the turbine on its axis, which was fascinating. But, you know, coming back to my question, hydropower particularly has been criticized for disrupting marine ecosystems. What are your thoughts on the role of hydropower? And also by extension of that, what are your thoughts on the trade-off? between sort of harnessing renewable energy and perhaps damaging the biosphere a little more at the cost of doing that? Well, hydropower by far is the largest modern renewable resource we have. I think because it's been around so long, it's, it's used more. And I think if done properly, it can be a really good option as renewable energy resource where perhaps solar or wind aren't viable. That being said, it's such a kind of hard thing to talk about because each project is completely different. Every water source, every waterfall, every river, it all has to be assessed on a case-by-case basis. Now, going back to human practices of trying to harness that power, now that's sort of the different story. The UK has a lot of micro-hydro projects. They're all less than a thousand kilowatts, but I think most of them are around a hundred or one or two hundred kilowatts. And those are called run of river systems. This is all regulated. They're only allowed to take out a certain amount. And if there's a certain plant species by the river, project's done. And basically they'll take a small portion, generate just that tiny bit of electricity, probably only powering a nearby village or small homes near there. And then they put it right back in down the river. That's one of those options. Now, in contrast, I'm from Buffalo, which is in New York, and very close to one of the largest hydropower projects in the world, which is Niagara Falls. Mm-hmm. And that produces electricity in the area for about 4 million people in the U.S. and Canada. Mm-hmm. And they say that something between 50 and 75% of the water is diverted before it even hits the falls. So I, I can't even imagine how much water would be going over those falls if it was at twice or three times more powerful than it already is. It would be interesting to see if that had not been used for hydropower, what the landscape would have even looked like. It probably would have been eroded a lot more, but that also brings in an opportunity for the tourism. So there's quite a few different elements to having that hydropower facility there, but I am aware that can have a devastating environmental effect, especially when there's a dam that's built, because what you're doing is you're fragmenting the habitat that's there. That's hitting the nail on the head because, yeah. I mean, even here we in India, we have certain hydropower projects which are very friendly, the marine ecosystems. But then there are some which are as disruptive, you know, very disruptive. So I think mm-hmm. it's also about the planning which goes into and before the execution. If the dams or your um, hydropower turbines are placed in areas, whether it's upstream or downstream, Relatively speaking, it has to be in a place where it's not disrupting the migratory patterns of the fish because very often fish are moving upstream to sort of lay the eggs and then moving back down. So, So I think it has to be done keeping in mind the ecology. Because like you said, it is undoubtedly a very powerful resource in renewable energy. So changing tracks a bit, going back to your work and, you know, finance and then that side of things. So your work as Chief Operating Financial Officer at Pico Analytics really intrigued me. Could you sort of elaborate on your work that you're doing there and, and more specifically on the work that you're doing around the climate risk impact side of things? Yeah, sure. So the risk to climate change have been identified by a systematic risk by financial regulators and policymakers have also weighed on this globally. But at Pico Analytics, we help banks, asset managers, hedge funds, and other financial services do different things to identify the risk due to climate change. So we look at their business process, 
their interaction with their suppliers and consumers. We measure that climate risk impact to the bank, asset manager, and their investments by measuring and trying to mitigate it by exclusion of carbon-intensive industries and processes in their investments. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people would be really surprised to find how much fossil fuel or how carbon-intensive their investments actually are. So we also help them by trying to integrate the ESG, environmental, social, and governance practices into their business models and embracing processes and investments that deliver positive environmental outcomes. So for ESG, so environment, the E, is how a company acts toward the planet. And you can look at their energy consumption, their carbon output, water, their emissions, and the sort of their waste practices. Social is how a company treats its employees, customers, suppliers, and local communities. And you can look at their labor practices, any human rights issues. And governments is how a company is run, including audits and and shareholder rights. So you want to make sure there's no discrimination. Hopefully there's equal pay rights, no corruption, things like that. You and I understand what a climate risk impact is, but if you were to tell a class 10 student what a climate risk impact is, how would you do that? Sounds so simple. Um, It's tough because, you know, obviously, if that's something I do every day. So I would say climate risk impact would be we're assessing your impact on the environment and on the planet by your business practices, by what you're doing on a day-to-day or even sort of yearly to whatever the time period that we're looking for and what's causing that and what are the ways that we can fix that. So it's like the audit that I spoke of. Exactly. It's exactly like the audit, except looking at financial instruments, which aren't always the most clear-cut thing to look at, but uh, we try. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you mentioned the example of a pension, but even other than that, you know, uh, businesses tend to, you know, especially in the case of B2B, you know, business to business operations, there are a lot of overlapping interests, right? Uh, even in the nonprofit sector, for that matter, you know, we often look for funding from, you know, large corporates for our projects. So we look for sponsorships. But um, ultimately, the big question is then, is it ethical to approach such a company because XYZ person in their board is supporting, I don't know, fossil fuel company or something like that? So the question that I'm really getting at is how often are you successful in changing the minds of people, discouraging them from sort of, you know, going with one company or one partner, or at least making them aware that, you know, okay, if by virtue of sort of, you know, investing your pension over here, you're supporting XYZ thing, you know, so how successful are you in bringing about that change in people's heads? I think outside of our work, that's something quite tough, especially with my climate education things that I do, because more often than not, you'll find somebody that if you just don't believe in science, you're never going to dissipate them. Yeah. In the finance sector, however, I find it much easier when you can show people that you're still going to make a profit or how much savings they're going to have, because ultimately it is a business. And really, they're doing that, A, for regulatory purposes, or B, maybe there are people that are genuinely want to better their business, mm-hmm. even if they take maybe a loss. But I would say for the majority of the cases, it's uh, going to be the bottom line. So when you can demonstrate that investing in something, what they call them green, green investments, green bonds or something like that, is just as profitable, if not more profitable than what you're already doing, um, it's not hard to change someone's mind. That's exactly where this whole idea of ESG has come around, you know. So I recently, as an amateur, you know, barely any sort of amounts, but I started to invest in some of these mutual funds and stocks uh, just as an amateur thing, you know, just as a hobby, not too much. And I learned that there are these mutual funds now which allow you to invest in ESG sectors. So I think that's where the whole thing sort of came out from because you're right. I mean, businesses are obviously driven by a profit motive. So it's really about showing them that, okay, 
A instead of following track A, you can follow track B and you can also get some sort of good credit or just winning some brownie points in the eyes of the public by, you know, sort of going with route B. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's very interesting. And, you know, how do you envision the future in relation to the role of, you know, renewable energy in the climate crisis? Do you think there would be advancements in the future which would have negative or a positive impact on the climate? Well, as we were talking about, you know, technology is getting cheaper and cheaper year by year. The key is going to be to storing this energy or transporting at great distances. But I think the key is going to be focused around uh, batteries and, and storing it. But I think we also need to be careful with that because I'm not an expert, but battery recycling um, on a commercial level, I don't think that's viable on a worldwide. It's something very specialized that I think only really large companies can do. And there's a lot of things in some of these batteries that really harmful toxic materials. And I think I read somewhere it was up to only 80% can be recycled. And then 20% is sort of that. Yeah what's left after. So I think we need to be really careful about how we're going to go about storing it and the technology that we're going to use to store it. And enhancing current technologies is is also a really good way to go forward. For example, green steel, which is made using hydrogen, where the byproduct is water, um, instead of coal, where the byproduct is CO2. That's something that's, I think, pretty exciting because Steel is still used pretty much in everything, and it's going to be used in everything. You know, you need it in a lot of building construction, bridges and and things like that. And I think one other technology that really could use improvement is carbon capture and storage. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is notoriously expensive and not very effective. Worldwide, I think 31 million tons of CO2 is captured by a number of plants all over the world, running at very high costs. And I think if that's something that can really be researched and innovated, that could really be a great way of sequestering carbon. For sure. Okay. I think that's been very interesting and very illuminating for a lot of people, you know, to learn about how all of these things come together, renewable energy, finance. But one question I always sort of close with for whichever guest I have on the podcast is I always say that young people are the future because, you know, the people who are sitting in parliament right now would most likely not be there in parliament 20 years from now. So it's really up to us to sort of define what we would like to see, because 20 years from now, if we sort of made to sit in parliament, it might be too late to take control of a crisis, which has been years in the making even before us. So what would be your sort of one single message or piece of advice you would like to give to everyone who's listening to this podcast, but also to young people? Well, first off, I'd love to just reiterate your point of the future is um, unfortunately on the shoulders of young people. Um, There was a reason that John Kerry, when he re-signed the US into uh, the Paris Agreement, he had his granddaughter on his lap. He just said, this is for her. It's going to come down to the young people. And I think my message is, Use your voice, use your choices in in the marketplace, use your votes if you can vote, or at least in in schools, you you did this audit in eighth grade and you were able to demonstrate on a granular level what the school is doing and how it's doing. So I don't think anything's too small for anybody to get involved with. And yeah, just sort of keep going. For sure. And if anyone would like to reach out to you about this podcast, if they have any questions, is there a good way to contact you? Absolutely. Uh, LinkedIn would probably be the best way. Perfect. Well, folks, that was Emily Robinson. Do follow our Instagram at the rate Candid Climate Conversations to stay updated with what's happening on the podcast. You can also find updates on the Ramphal Institute's LinkedIn and Facebook pages. That's all for now. Stay safe and stay tuned to Candid Climate Conversations with the Peel. 